You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. One of the things that people have been fascinated with throughout centuries is the notion of what does the future hold? People are always kind of wondering to themselves, what is the future going to be like? Perhaps maybe even like yourself right now, you might say to yourself, well, I'm not so much concerned about what's going to happen five years down the road or even ten years down the road. You're just wondering, can I go on vacation this summer? That's probably what you're wondering. You're like, can I go somewhere when it gets warmer out? That's probably the thing that's on your mind. Uh, But people have been fascinated with the future for centuries and have tried to find ways to figure out how will I be able to determine what the future is. And there's certainly been no end of different efforts that people have had to try and discern the future. There have been people that have looked to their daily horoscope in the newspaper to be able to determine, are the stars aligned? Will will fortune shine down on me because of uh, the way that the planets are aligned? Um, Some people go to fortune tellers or psychics, which incidentally, don't you think that the psychics probably should have figured out what was going to happen in 2020 before it actually happened, but nothing but crickets on that, right? If that was real, then they probably should have known that, right? Uh, Or tarot cards, or people trying to find out what the future holds in different ways. And in some ways, they're just simply trying to control what seems to be uncontrollable. We don't know what the future holds. Um, But for those of us who are Christians, we know who holds the future, We know the future is in God's hands. And I want to talk to you today about the future. I want to talk to you about prophecy as well because there's a tendency among Christians where they look at prophecy in much the same way that some people look at fortune telling and other things. They want God to be able to tell them what's going to happen before it happens so that I can be ready and I can change and I can adjust to what's happening. But that's not the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is to point people to God to trust him because all of our days are in his hands. So today I want to talk to you about the role of prophecy in decision making. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 21 in just a moment. But before we do that, I want you to look at this uh, passage of scripture that the psalmist David wrote uh, in Psalm 139. And he wrote this. He says, for you formed my inward parts and you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. And then verse 16 goes on to say, as we go there, your eyes saw my substance yet being unformed. And in your book, they were all written the days fashioned before me as uh, when as yet there were none of them. Or another way of saying that is before one of them even came to be. So an important understanding for those of us who put our faith and trust in God is that we must understand that the number of our days, the future, what is in store for us are in the hands of Almighty God. And when we start there, you know, that will help us tremendously in our perspective about life and our perspective about the future. This is immensely important, too, because when we want to know the future— when we want it all spelled out for us, when we run to different places to be able to find out what those things are, what we are saying is that, God, I will trust you if you tell me what you're going to do. Which, if you know, it's like, okay, trust isn't always necessarily when the person communicates to you what's going to happen. How many times have people said, trust me? Or how many times as you, as a mom or a dad, have to tell someone, trust me? Because there are times where explanations fail. And even explanations are inadequate. Because there are people who say, well, yeah, I understand that's your plan, but what about this or what about that? So sometimes God doesn't always let us know what's going to happen. And he just simply wants us to trust him. And that's an important realization for us to have. Let's take a look um, at the role of prophecy in decision making. Now, what is prophecy? Now, prophecy, people simply think that all prophecy has to do with is the future. That everything about prophecy has to do with is the future. If you watch movies, they'll say, well, the prophecy says. If you watch The Matrix, well, the prophecy talks about this. Or you play different, uh, you play video games and you say, well, the prophecy says this is going to happen. And so we think prophecy is purely and only about the future. But prophecy 
has more to do with that than just simply the future. A simple definition about prophecy is this, is whenever the word of the Lord is spoken, that's prophecy. Whenever the word of the Lord is spoken, that's prophecy. Because even as we read the scriptures, we are reading prophecy fulfilled and unfolded. So the word of the Lord comes through the scriptures, it comes through preaching, but it also comes in in declaring the word of the Lord for your particular situation. So prophecy is way more than just having to do with the future, uh, the future for this world, the future for this area, the future for your life. Those things are parts of prophecy, but it's way more than just those things. There are two essential elements to prophecy. There is foretelling, which has to do with the future. We know what foretelling is. But there's also foretelling, and foretelling is declaring that which is true and that which has already happened and that which actually is. So the prophets often do that because we think of a prophet as all they do is just they go around and they predict the future. But in reality, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, because that's kind of our basis for what a prophet actually is, you'll recognize that the, the majority of the prophet's ministry was to speak to a people that had kind of gotten off course and away from God and to remind them about getting back to the truth and getting back to uh, God's principles for life and for justice and for conducting themselves and doing the right thing. So anytime you saw the prophet uh, preach and declare, he would often tell of what is true. So he would foretell the truth about what they knew to be true about God, about his commandments, about his precepts, and remind them that they should really need to get back then to them. And that's when, when they didn't, now this is very interesting, when people didn't do that, that's when the predictive element of prophecy would take place, where the prophets would foretell, if you continue down this pathway, this is going to happen to you, that you'll be led away to captivity, or you'll experience hardship or difficulty, or in the times of great difficulty, in the times of captivity, it was the prophets that offered hope and encouragement to those who were struggling and saying, you know, I know you feel like you want to lose hope and lose your faith, but don't do that because God has a wonderful plan for the future if you just hold on. Prophets in the Old Testament did both of those things. Now, in the New Testament, prophecy has two contexts. It's done through preaching, because remember, Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy, okay? If you don't know who Jesus is, Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. He came down to earth, the divine sent Son of God. He was sent to us to be able to tell us what God is like. So unlike every other religion in the world that we kind of don't really know, we've never really seen God face to face, God puts a face on himself when he brings Christ into this world that we see what God looks like. We see what God is like, his nature, his temperament, the way that he conducts himself. We see that he preaches and shows us what God is like and who God is. And then because of the sins of mankind, he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, died on the cross in one of the most horrible deaths you can possibly imagine. But that wasn't the end of who Jesus was and his ministry because the promise was that on the third day he would rise again. And he did that. And by doing so, he demonstrated not only his divinity and his deity as being God, but also conquering the one thing that every person in mankind is afraid of, and that's death. And if you didn't need a reminder of that, 2020 was a good reminder that people are still afraid of death. Am I right? People are still scared to death of death. And we could say to ourselves, you know, I don't care, you know, my life is for God and all those things, but yet there are still portions of our life last year where people conducted themselves at, uh, being afraid of death at the expense of living. You know what I'm talking about? That we could, you know, life, you lived, but you survived. You didn't thrive. You didn't enjoy life. So life kind of became this drudgery. But Christ came into this world conquering death through the resurrection from the dead and has promised that those who put their faith in him will experience that victory over death as well. We all will die at some point in time, but death is not the end for us. So prophecy has two contexts, preaching, which is what I'm doing this morning, by the way. And then the second part of it is the gift of the Spirit, 
There are nine gifts of the Spirit as outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also 1 Corinthians 14. And one of the nine gifts of the Spirit that are in operation in the New Testament is prophecy. And so we're going to focus on this particular area uh, and this particular gift this morning, the gift of prophecy as it pertains to the life of the New Testament church. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 21. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. And so if you're not familiar with with the Bible, that's fine. We have it on the screen behind us if you don't own one. By the way, if you would like a Bible, I would be more than happy to get you one. And a good one at that, too. If you need a decent study Bible, anytime you need a Bible, just let me know. I would prefer you to have one than not have one. And don't simply let this time on Sunday morning be the only time that you get into the Bible. So if you need a Bible, just let us know, and we'll be happy to purchase one for you because we see it as important that daily Bible reading and getting into the Word for yourself is an important part of knowing who God is. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 21. This is the book of Acts, which is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But as we look at it, we're following the journey of the Apostle Paul as he goes about preaching and teaching and ministering throughout Uh, most of the Mediterranean area and the area of Europe. And so we see, um, beginning in verse 1, a portion of his life where he's warned not to go somewhere. So let's take a look at that together. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail. Now I want to stop here and mention that Luke is writing this. Luke is a traveling companion for uh, Paul, and he is with them on their journey. So a lot of Acts uh, covers not only Paul's teaching, but also where they've been and what they are doing. And so it says that we had departed from them and set sail. Running straight course, we came to Kos, and the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship, we went over to Phoenicia, and we went and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For the ship was there to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And look at this in verse 4. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. You should probably underline that. By the Spirit, the believers that they met in this area told Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Verse 5. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children until we were out of the city. And we knelt down the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and returned home. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. And the next day, uh, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. And stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. You can underline that. So, there again, we're seeing divine insight by the Spirit being uh, emphasized not once but twice. And it says, These four virgin daughters who prophesied. And then we stay with them many days, and a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, take a look at verse 11. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt from around his own uh, hands and feet, and he said, and he wrapped it around himself, and he said, this, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So there's a prophecy from a prophet named Agabus. Verse 12, it says, Now when we heard these things, both we and those who were from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture because remember we're talking about the future. We're talking about prophecy. We want to know how things are going to work out, but what happens when God tells you how it's going to work out and you're saying, well, that's my destiny anyway. I'm going to walk in that. Now, if you were reading this, you would simply say to yourself, well, why doesn't simply Paul just listen to what's been said on numerous occasions and not go to Jerusalem? Wouldn't you think that would be the logical conclusion of things? But I want you to talk about this today because the Apostle Paul used to be a persecutor of the church. 
but then converted to Christianity in a miraculous and powerful way and became a powerful preacher for the cause of Christ. Now, he desires to go to Jerusalem. He's traveling back to Jerusalem with a dual purpose, one, to get there for a particular feast, the Feast of Pentecost, and that he wanted to celebrate that feast with the believers in Jerusalem, but also he had been receiving an offering from the various churches to help those saints that were in need in Jerusalem. But all along the way, he had been warned by friends and companions and churches not to go to Jerusalem because there was a great deal of hostility towards him there. And in fact, there were people that wanted to kill him in that city. Every place he went to, they warned him, don't go to Jerusalem. In Ephesus, in Tyre, in Caesarea. And Paul was left with a decision. Do I stay or should I go? What should I do? If I go to Jerusalem, I will most surely experience hostility, imprisonment, and possibly death. Now think about this, because we want to know the future. We want to know what's going to happen to us. With the intent that if we know that things are going to be bad, let's avoid the things that are bad. I, I, I particularly want to avoid things that are bad. I don't know about you. I'm not looking forward to bad things. I don't shun or shy away from them. There are times where you have to confront people about things, and there's conversations you need to have, and I wish I could avoid those conversations, but eventually I bite the bullet, and I just go ahead, and I have to do and have those conversations. We would all like to avoid the unpleasant things of life, and part of our fascination sometimes with prophecies is, well, how do I avoid difficulty? How do I avoid hardship? But what if part of the prophecy is that you will go through it? What do you do then? For most people, the prophecies that Paul received would be confusing, but not for Paul because Paul already knew what God wanted them to do. What do we know about the gift of prophecy? It was a gift that was in operation in the New Testament church. It was a gift that many people operated in. Men operated in the gift of prophecy. Men prophesied. We also see that women prophesied. Here we see in the house of Philip, the evangelist, we see that he has four daughters, and all four daughters who are unmarried, they all prophesy. So we're seeing this real theme of prophecy being emphasized in these 14 verses. And the the emphasis of the prophecy is that, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's dangerous. Don't go to Jerusalem because you could experience hostility and death and hardship there. And so we see that um, these daughters of Philip uh, prophesied as well. Now, if you don't know who Philip is, in Acts chapter 6, we see that seven deacons are chosen from among the early church, men who are full of spirit. And Philip is one of them. And Philip is just simply a deacon. But how many know that you can't just simply be a deacon if you're full of the Spirit of God? That you can be used in greater ways? And Philip was one of those people that became an evangelist and reached out to Samaria and preached in Samaria, seeing people getting saved and baptized. And Samaria received the gospel because of Philip and his efforts. And it had been about 20 years since Paul and Philip had crossed paths. And you can imagine how this would be, because think about it this way, okay? Philip was good friends with Stephen because Stephen was one of the seven deacons that were chosen uh, among the church to represent the church as deacons. But imagine this, okay? Remember how Stephen died. Stephen was stoned to death for the witness of the gospel. And at that time, when he was being stoned to death, there was a, a young man that was standing there giving consent to his death, holding the coats of those who were throwing stones. And that person was Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul after he became saved. You can imagine how that meeting might have gone, that here's somebody coming to visit me, and didn't you give consent to my buddy's death like while you were still not a Christian. But you got to remember, too, that God's grace transforms a life and changes it in such a way that the past is forgiven, and now they are sharing the same space together. Paul is staying with them. We see that Philip uh, is used by the Lord. We see that his daughters are used to prophesy. We even see that there's this man named Agabus who is a prophet, too. And this is something that happened in the New Testament church, that People who were used in the gift of prophecy weren't necessarily just the apostles. It shows us that everyday people were empowered by God's Spirit to be used as mouthpieces for God to be able to speak forth His truth. 
We see in Acts chapter 11 that Agabus was uh, a prophet that was regarded in Jerusalem and that when he came to Jerusalem, he prophesied that there'd be a great famine in the area. And because of what he said, the disciples all worked together and they took up an offering to be able to help uh, the disciples that are in the saints that were experiencing famine in that region. So Agus would regard as someone who did hear from God, who did speak the truth of God. And this warning actually helped them plan and prepare for the future. Now we see Agabus again here, and he, he is going uh, about this, and he begins to warn the Apostle Paul. And you can imagine this meeting, so Agabus uh, shows up on the scene, and everybody knows who Agabus is and what he does and what's his thing. He knows that he hears from God and knows that he speaks for God. And so he walks up to Paul, and he takes Paul's belt from around his waist, which is weird in and of itself because prophets tend to be a little on the strange side. If you doubt me, just go back to the Old Testament and look. By the way, it's not a license to be weird. Can I just say that, all right? Just because a prophet is weird doesn't mean you have to be weird. That's not part of the deal, you know? But, like, there are times where they tend to be a little on the dramatic side. So Agabus takes Paul's belt, and he wraps his belt around his own hands, and he says, in this way, you will be taken to Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. In other words, you are going to be arrested, bound, and turned over to authorities, and they're going to uh, hand you over to the Gentiles. And so as this happens, we see that Paul's companions, now remember Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and it says that we, along with others, tried to persuade Paul. We said, don't go to Jerusalem. It's clear God's speaking, okay? Now keep this in mind, God's speaking. He's saying something. Prophetically speaking, he's like, Paul, trouble waits you in Jerusalem. Trouble waits you in Jerusalem. Now, please understand that trouble awaits Paul in Jerusalem, but it was the people that interpreted it says, don't go to Jerusalem. Does it make sense? There's a difference here. It wasn't that God said, don't go to Jerusalem, but rather they were warning him that trouble was coming to him if he went to Jerusalem, and so they interpreted to say, that means you shouldn't go. Now keep that in mind, because that's an important realization to come to. Verses 13 and 14, Paul actually kind of interrupts the situation, and he says, listen, he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we realized that he could not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. So this passage brings up many questions. Was Paul ignoring the Holy Spirit? Was God actually speaking through those that were warning him? Or were they expressing their own worries or concerns? Was Paul being reckless with his plans to go to Jerusalem anyway? Some might consider Paul reckless for ignoring the warnings and still going to Jerusalem, And whereas some might have taken the warnings as prohibitions, saying don't go, for Paul who knew his calling, these prophecies were actually a warning to get ready and go. Some looked at it as like, don't go, but really what the Holy Spirit was preparing him for is saying, get ready and go. Agabus warns Paul if he goes into Jerusalem, he would be bound there. And notice that Agabus didn't say that he shouldn't go, but only that this would await him if he went. Now, this is an important distinction because we often, when we hear a prophecy, when God speaks, or you know, whether we're watching it on YouTube, where we're he- whether we're hearing it as a preacher, or whether we're hearing it for somebody else, we immediately jump to a conclusion about what that truly means. It wasn't that the prophecy actually said to Paul, don't go. It was what it was said to him is that there's problems awaiting you. So what do we normally imply? Don't go. Because why? We don't like problems. We don't like difficulties. We don't like being uh, mistreated. We don't like going to prison. We don't like death. But for Paul, this didn't really matter because Paul knew his calling. Paul knew what he was about. So the prophecies didn't confuse Paul because Paul's like, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. When you know what God wants you to do in life, you won't be confused by other things. If you're seeking and running after things, wondering what God wants me to do next, and you're listening to every word that comes your way, then you are going to be confused. But you should understand what God's calling is for your life, and Paul certainly did. 
In fact, when Paul was first converted to Christianity, God used a young man by the name of Ananias to minister to him and to preach to him. And this was at the time when Ananias knew that Paul was a persecutor of the church. And he kind of argued with God. He said, God, you really want me to go to this guy who's kind of a bad dude? And you want me to go and share the gospel with him? He said, I've heard about this man. And the Lord spoke to Ananias in verse 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 9. We can put that up there if we could. And the Lord's not hearing any of Ananias' objections. He says, go, for he is my chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before who? Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Isn't that interesting? That before Paul's ministry even began, before his conversion even started, God already determined what his calling and his purpose would be. To, to be able to minister before kings and rulers and Gentiles and that he would encounter difficulty along the way. So even before Paul was saved, God had a purpose for him and that he was going to f- be fulfilling. Even the Apostle Paul himself said that God had warmed him by the Holy Spirit what awaited him wherever he went. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. We talked about this last week. You know, we're together. And Paul says, he said, You see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel and the grace of God. Paul already knew what was going to happen to him. God had already shown him by the Holy Spirit on numerous occasions. And he had already resolved that his life was in God's hands and he was going to preach the gospel regardless of hardship or difficulty. So what about his companions? Was God not speaking through them when he told them not to go? I believe God was speaking uh, through them by the Holy Spirit and using his companions, but the difference lies in the interpretation. His friends and companions all took the warnings about danger awaiting him in Jerusalem as an indication that they should not, that he should not go. So they were saying, see, Agabus, even Agabus says, you're not supposed to go. But what well, was a, something that was meant that they looked at it as a means of keeping him from going, Paul looked at it as confirmation that he should go. I want you to think about that for a minute. Where everybody else is going, Paul, see you, that, did you hear what the man just said? He said that you're going to experience difficulty, you're going to be put in uh, chains, and you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Surely that means you shouldn't go. And Paul says, actually, that's confirmation that I should go. And so it just resolved in Paul's heart what he should be doing Confirmation and direction are part of prophecy. Confirmation is a big part of prophecy. When you receive a word of prophecy, it should always be filtered through your prayer life. It should already confirm something that God is already speaking to you about. Prophecy can be the push that you need to pull the trigger on something that God's been asking you to do for a while. It should not confuse you. Listen. It should not confuse you, but it should confirm what God wants you to do. I'll say it one more time because this is so important. Prophecy should not confuse you, but it should confirm to you what God wants you to do. If it confuses you, you have to put it on a shelf somewhere and wait for its fulfillment. If it creates confusion and anxiety in your life, it's probably not of God. Just going to say it. And some of us are racking our minds and and racking our brains about, well, what do we make out of all the things that we hear when people prophesy, when they say things, whether they say things about us or our nation or other things, we kind of get worked up over these things, but we have to discern and say, okay, is this what God is truly saying? Is it creating confusion or is it creating confirmation? What is God saying in the midst of it? But if it's clear and not confusing, it should give you the boldness and confidence to do what God has been speaking to you. Now, when it comes to direction and prophecy, it can have a big part in changing the direction of a person's life for God. In the absence of a clear calling, prophecy can powerfully direct a person to follow God's call on them. For example, King David was just a shepherd boy out in the fields. 
before God called him to be king. He was the forgotten member of the family. When the prophet Samuel called for a meeting of all the sons of Jesse, Jesse brought together all of his sons except for the youngest who happened to be out watching the sheep. And David was just going about his life being a shepherd boy, but God had something bigger in store for him that he did not know. And then finally when the prophet insists and says, is there anyone else, do you have any other sons because I don't see God's chosen among your sons here. And Jesse was like, yeah, I do have one more son, but he's out in the field. And he brought him in. And the Lord said to Samuel, go, anoint this man king, the youngest of all the family, to be king over Israel. And they anointed this little shepherd boy named David at the age of 16 years old, that someday he would be king over Israel. By the way, David didn't see that prophecy fulfilled until years and years later, after King Saul, the king who was currently in power, pursued him and chased him down and tried to put him to death. But it was the word of prophecy that changed the course of David's life for the better, and it was that word that he held on to and went forward with. So there are times where we have no calling and we have no direction, and the word of prophecy is there to give us a sense of direction. But if you already have one, the prophecy is not supposed to change what your calling is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not to change what your calling is. Prophecy serves to offer little adjustments in God's calling on your life because Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. In other words, you can't take those things back like you would at Amazon and just turn them back in and say, you know, I tried this call of God thing on my life, but you know what? It's still within the 14-day return policy, so I'm going to drop this off at Kohl's, and God, you can take it back because I really don't want it anymore. When God calls you, when he gifts you, he doesn't take it away. Which is why we see confusion in the world today because there are people who are operating in prophetic gifts because God's call and his gifts are irrevocable, yet they are not walking in his ways. Does that make sense? You say, well, how can God use a person that has the gifts of prophecy and other gifts in their life and they can be so far off or heretical or any of those things? Why? Because God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. I know that seems confusing, but what's also confusing too is, you know, Matthew 25, it gives you some insight and some sense into the situation when in the parable of the sheep or the goats, or when it talks about those who, you know, didn't we, we can't, or when Jesus talks about, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do these things in your name? And it's possible that a person can completely get away from the gospel and get away from the truth, yet have operated in gifts of the Spirit and still fall away from the truth. Does it make sense? And then you say, well, Lord, Lord. And it says, I don't even know who you are. Why? Because God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. He doesn't take them back. Look at Samson's life. Samson's life was a dumpster fire. It really was. Like, and God gave him strength, and God did great things through him, and yet he was, like, morally bankrupt. And why did God still use him? It's because God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. God can change and uses prophecy to change and have you make adjustments to the call he's put on your life. For example, if you're called to be a missionary, God doesn't change the calling, but he might change the country. Does it make sense? When God calls you to be a missionary, he may not change the calling, but he might change the country. If he's called you to be a pastor, he may not necessarily change your calling, but he might change the church and the region that you go to. So what does that mean? The calling's still the same, but where you go, and by divine insight and direction, God leads and guides in those directions. Prophecy is important when it comes down to it. Prophecy is not what we observe about a person. By the way, operating in prophecy is not when you go up to somebody and say, wow, you see that they dress well, and you say, wow, I see that God has blessed you financially, and God has endued you with wealth. That's observation. It really is. Or if you look at a person's finger and you see that they're single and say, I, I believe that God has someone for you in your future because you're single and I prophesy over you that you're going to be married someday to someone else. That's observation. That's cheating. That's not actually prophecy. That's someone looking for little tells and little things. That's actually manipulation, by the way. There's nothing scriptural about that. There's nothing spiritual about that. 
But the way that you know it's God is when God speaks through someone and they're right in front of you and they're praying for you and God gives them insight into your life that no one else could know. And they begin to speak something, things that you've spoken privately in your own frustrations, things that you cried out for God in your prayer closet. When the person stands before you and prays over you and declares those things over your life, you know that they're hearing from God. There's no question as far as that is concerned. So prophecy is not observation. Prophecy is not just pumping somebody up and, up and making them feel good. Prophecy is not a vehicle and a voice for our concerns and our opinions. When someone comes up for prayer and we go, wow, Lord, if they just kind of got their life straightened out and did the right things, Lord, then I just see that God's really got to, okay, that's your opinion. Stop trying to wedge your opinion in to the gift of prophecy and the gift of prayer. Someone wants prayer, pray for them, even if you know that their life is not exactly great. But they're not going to receive that necessarily at the prayer line. That's discipleship right there. That's working with someone through their issues. And forever, there will always be people that come up for prayer who never want to change anything, but they want God to change it for them. Can I tell you today that seeking after prophecy is not a substitute for your prayer life? If God's going to direct you, if he's going to guide your life, if he's going to give you the plan and the blueprint for your life, prophecy is not the substitution for it. It's not the shortcut by which you come to understand what God wants you to do. If you're not praying in the first place, you might as well give up right there. Because God directs us through our prayer life. God directs us through about what we need to do. And sometimes we need that, just that little push to let us know it's not just us, but that God's working. And that's when God, through prophecy, will say, and the things that God has laid upon your heart to do. Do them because know that I will be with you as you do them. That's when prophecy becomes powerful in the life of an individual. Prophecy is not manipulation, nor should it be. It's a divinely inspired gift that should be cherished and not abused. When the actual gift of prophecy is in operation, it's clear that it's from God because there are things that only God would know. Now, how do we discern prophecy? There are some things that we can do. Now, remember, Paul was discerning. Paul was an apostle led by the Spirit. And you say, well, how can he ignore these warnings? It's all about the interpretation of what's being said. It's not being said, don't go. It's just simply saying that trouble awaits you. Paul's like, that's great because that's what God showed me too. Trouble awaits me, so here I go. So whereas other people are saying, well, this is something to pull back on and not do, Paul's like, that's what I needed to hear That's the stamp of approval. I'm ready to go. And Paul followed through with it. But how do we discern prophecy today? Especially today in the world that we live in. Well, there's some ways that we can go about doing it. Number one, is it biblical? You can write that down, by the way. Is it biblical? Does what is what is being said to you contradict what the word says? This is where we see false religions and cults arise because someone has a revelation, a prophecy from God. And all of a sudden that that religion is based around the idea that Jesus wasn't actually the son of God, but he's an angel. Because some revelation that somebody had. Forgetting the fact that even, uh, even the enemy, even the devil can bring about spirits that can lie and bring about revelation and understanding in ways that can get you off the beaten path. So what keeps you true is, is it biblical? Is this something that God would say? God does not contradict himself doctrinally. He's going to not undo something he's already declared and said that he would do. That's the first thing. Secondly, is it moral? Is it going to direct you to do something that goes against the Ten Commandments, that goes against what is right, what is true, what is righteous? If it's directing you to do those things, then you shouldn't do it. You should immediately throw it out. He's saying, well, you know, God says to you that you should go and burn down your neighbor's fence because he is currently infringing upon your property boundary lines. You know that's not from God because God would never ask you to do that. That Biblically speaking, morally speaking, he would never condone an act of violence or other things like that that would have you do something that goes contrary to what the moral law is. Does it stand the test of the spirit among those who are prophets. That's another thing. What are other prophets saying? 
Because you got to remember, too, in the New Testament, too, that as one person prophesied in, in uh, chapter 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, that when someone prophesied and another prophet got up, then that first prophet was to sit down and stop speaking. How does it stand among other prophets that are in their company? Prophecies are meant to be tested. I'll say that again. Prophecy is meant to be tested. The reason why you're confused is because you're not testing it. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is being said. What does it mean to weigh? It means that you are listening to what's being said. Is it being done in the right spirit? Is it biblically true? Is it morally right? And you're weighing those things out. There are times where you'll hear a word from the Lord being spoken in a uh, service like this or in a prayer meeting, and you'll know in your spirit whether it's right or not because it won't sit right. I'm not talking about it won't sit right in the sense that uh, you don't like what's being said. It just doesn't feel like that was necessarily from God, but rather someone's opinion or the wrong perspective or a misinterpretation of Scripture. So you have to weigh that out and determine whether that is true or not. Weighing is about listening, contemplating, and praying. If it doesn't sit right with your spirit, then it's probably not from God and can be ignored. I believe this is where the American church has gotten into trouble with prophecy. There is no accountability anymore. No one's weighing and testing the prophecies according to God's word. We see two troubling trends in in the American church today. You can write these down. Number one, people too quickly accept anything that's labeled as prophecy as being from God. That's the first thing. Well, I have a prophecy. I have a revelation. Okay, then we must accept that, like all of it, kind of like you're ordering a sandwich at Kettle Bread Deli, uh, you know, deli down the road, and they get your, your meal wrong. You know, you order a steak and cheese with blue cheese crumble on it, you know, and you tell them no pickles, and somehow pickles have found their way into your sandwich. And you don't simply go, okay, I'm eating this sandwich because it was given to me. I ordered it correctly. It was supposed to come to me, and I'm just going to eat it because this is the way it should come to me. That's foolishness. We don't just eat anything that's said in front of us if it doesn't look right. Am I right? We are wise and discerning in those things. So one of the things that we do, that when we hear someone that says that this is a word coming from God, that we must be discerning and test it. We are too accepting with what is being labeled as prophecy, not even looking into whether the, the nature of the prophecy, who's saying it, where's it coming from, what's being said. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the other extreme, where prophecy is being treated with contempt, so much so that Christians mock it and make fun of it. So somewhere in between, that's where we find ourselves in America. Either people wholesale buying things that are coming to them by way of prophecy, or they're saying, oh, prophecy is nothing. That's because of the the few kooks that are out there. Prophecy doesn't happen anymore. But if we go about it biblically, that will address both those issues entirely. If you approach prophecy biblically... It will take care of both those things. It shows that you still want to hear from God. You're still looking for a word from God, but you are discerning enough to recognize that not everything that's said to be from God is actually from God. It's like the lady in the church that says, Pastor, I feel like God's telling me we should do more hymns. And that's really not them. That's their opinion. But they talk to my boss. And because they talked to my boss, they went over my head, they talked to God, and God said to them, do more hymns, that I should do more hymns, and he should inform me too. Not realizing that I also speak to God, and he has not told me that. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Is that we need to be discerning about, when people say, I'm speaking for God, we have to recognize what's behind it. If we approach prophecy biblically, then it resolves both of those things. Deuteronomy 18 21 and 22 says this, and you'll just follow me with that if you read it. It says, if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word of the Lord has not been spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet that has spoken it, he has spoken it presumptuously. And you shall not be afraid of him. 
Now, what does this mean? In other words, the person that presumes to speak as a prophet, if they say something and it doesn't come to pass, then God has really not spoken to them. And he says, you don't need to fear them or the prophecy, or you don't even need to heed them. Because often the prophet would say, mark my words. You know that phrase, mark my words? That's a prophetic declaration, by the way, from the Old Testament. Mark my words. In other words, write this down. If I'm a prophet, it'll either come to pass or it won't. Okay? And so he says, if it doesn't come to pass, he said, that person, you don't need to pay attention to that person if it doesn't come to pass. In other words, if a person presumes to speak, we can filter it through whether or not it lines up with what God's word says. Oftentimes, prophecy will only make sense in the rearview mirror. It only makes sense after it's already happened. Only when the fullness of God's plan is fully revealed will we fully understand. In the meantime, it can be confusing. We don't know why God chose to do it a certain way. And sometimes we might think that we fully understand his plans, but many times we're just projecting our own understanding to what God has said. The best thing that we can do is like Paul's companion said, let God's will be done. We don't know how it's all going to unfold. We hear many different things. Whether it be over your life or whether it be in the world that we're living in today, one of the best things that you can do is let God's will be done. Because when we say that, like we're saying, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but it's in your hands. When God is actually working through prophecy, marvelous things happen. 1 Corinthians 14 says this, and I'm going to wrap this up here. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me in the front, if you would. 1 Corinthians 14, when prophecy is working as it should, by the way, it should be working in the church. It should be in operations in the church. We shouldn't shy away from it. Just because there are mistakes that are made when people pray over you and when they say things over you doesn't mean that prophecy isn't real and you shouldn't listen to it. You just need to test it and be discerning and filter it through whether or not it's true or whether it's biblical or not. We can be wise and discerning. There's no, reason why, there's no reason why we have to fall into either accepting it wholesale or being scoffing and mocking of it. Why can't we just simply say, you know what, I'm hearing what people are saying and I'm applying it to God's word and it's the filter by which I will either accept or reject what is being said to me. When God's uh, prophecy is actually at work through someone, 1 Corinthians 14 says this, verses 24 and 25. It says, but if a prophecy if all prophecy in an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and convicted by all, and the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. When prophecy is working the way it should, in the local church, when it's being declared, then it reveals the nature of the heart. It shows what's going on in a person's life. And as a result, that person will say, only God could have known that. God is surely among you and in our midst today. This morning, I believe that God is in our midst today. I believe that God still wants to speak to you today. I believe that he is still uh, a God that declares what his plans are. And instead of fretting about the future or even kind of wondering what's going to happen a few months from now or what God's plan for my life is, I can tell you this, you need to get into your prayer closet. You need to get in alone with God and have him tell you what his plan for your life is. And prophecy only brings you back to where you should be. It only confirms what should be. It only gives you that direction and confirmation that you need. If we look at it that way, then we'll be so much better off and so much less confused than we are right now. This morning, I believe God has a beautiful plan for your future. I believe God has a plan for your life that you couldn't even think of or imagine. But it has to come to the point where you recognize and you want God to be part of your life. That's so important. When you allow God to be part of your life, it's not just you trying to figure out the world and the universe. You have God partnering with you and standing with you and guiding you and directing you every step of the way. And you'll find blessing and fulfillment and you'll find yourself happier because you recognize you are falling into the place of exactly where God has you in life. But many people walk through life not even thinking about it. 
Many people just go about life happily, not even thinking, what's God's divine plan for me? Or that even God thinks about me or cares about me. Can I tell you today that God deeply, madly, lovingly cares for you like no one else in this world ever could? More so than your mother or your father, more so than your wife or your girlfriend. God loves you more than any of those people ever could because he created you. And he has a plan and purpose for your life. That is good, even when there are things in life that are bad. I wonder today, if we could just take a moment and close our eyes and bow our heads today. In this sacred moment, recognizing that God is in our midst today. That God has been with us all throughout this message and he will be with us in the future. Today, if you say, Pastor, this morning I want to align myself with God's plan for my life. I don't want to live in confusion. I don't want to live uh, uncertain, but rather I, wanna, I want what God wants for me. I want his will to be done in my life. If that's where you're at, just simply raise your hand and I'll pray for you as we close this service today that we will just trust God and believe God that he's going to guide and direct you in the path for your life that is set apart for you. Thank you. Anyone else? As soon as you put your hand up, you can put it back down. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Let's pray. Let's ask God. And I want to tell you today that if you are here in this moment and you're listening to the sound of my voice, whether it's here or online, if you speak to God right now in this moment of quiet reflection, I believe God will answer that desire of your heart to know him and to know his plan for your life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that you've not left us alone in this world to try and figure out the future. Lord, nor have you made things confusing. Lord, revelation is about revealing yourself to us. And Lord, we know that the scriptures are fulfilled and the revelation is closed when it comes to you and your plan for us. But Lord, there are elements of our life that we're still trying to figure out. How can I honor you with my business? How can I honor you with my job? How can I honor you in my family? Are you calling me to pastoral ministry? Are you calling me to be a missionary? There's so many questions that are left unanswered. I pray today, God, that you would make it clear to them. Show them the direction. May there be no confusion in any way concerning your plan for their life but may they follow after you. I pray for those that are here today that are listening, Lord God, that, Lord God, maybe they haven't quite yet made that decision to fully embrace faith in God or, or to follow after you. I pray, Lord, you would make yourself known to them and show them that you have a beautiful and wonderful plan for their life, better than anything that they could have come up with on their own. Guide and direct them. Lord, we love you today. We know that our future is in your hands. Let us not be afraid, worried, or fearful, but let us trust the God that has given us life everlasting and walk with him all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.